I'd like to let you know about a few upcoming programs. At the end of this month, we have Cultivating Soul, a day with New York Times bestselling author Thomas More on October 27th in Glen Ellen and October 28th in downtown Chicago. On November 3rd, we have Water is Life, Not Just a Commodity, Young and the Native American Soul with Sarah Sage, LPC, LMHC. On November 5th, we have a special event at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. Tickets include seats on the front main floor of the opera, as well as a pre-opera talk by Jungian analyst George Hoganson. And in December, we have a special lecture by Lionel Corbett, MD, The Soul in Anguish, A Depth Psychological Approach to Suffering. Because we have Lionel Corbett speaking in December, this podcast episode will be the first part of a series that he did with Kathy Rives. For more information about any of those events, visit our website, youngchicago.org. Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, analytical psychology seminars from the archives of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Jungian Psychology and Kohut's Self-Psychology, with Lionel Corbett, M.D. and Kathy Rives, M.D. This episode is the first session of the series Jungian Psychology and Kohut's Self-Psychology. The psychoanalytic methods of self-psychology as developed by Heinz Kohut examined the development and the developmental disturbances of self-esteem and confidence, the formation and malformation of guiding ideals, empathy for the thoughts and feelings of others, initiative and creativity, and even sense of humor and wisdom. Lionel Corbett and Kathy Rives compare and contrast Jung's theory of the self, as well as general aspects of Jungian psychology, with Kohut's self-psychology, which is rapidly becoming a mainstream alternative to both classical psychoanalytic drive theory and ego psychology. They also utilize case studies as well as fairy tale and myth analysis to help illustrate these theories. It was recorded in 1989. Lionel Corbett, MD, is a professor of depth psychology at the Pacifica Graduate Institute. His primary interests are the religious functions of the psyche, especially the way in which personal religious experience is relevant to the individual psychology, the development of psychotherapy as a spiritual practice, and the interface of Jungian psychology and contemporary psychoanalytic thought. He is the author of numerous professional papers and four books, Psyche and the Sacred, Spirituality Beyond Religion, The Religious Function of the Psyche, the Sacred Cauldron, Psychotherapy as a Spiritual Practice, and most recently, The Soul in Anguish, Psychotherapeutic Approaches to Suffering. Kathy Rives, MD, is a psychiatrist, Jungian analyst, and past chair of the Clinical Psychology Program at the Pacifica Graduate Institute. She is particularly interested in Jungian developmental theory, a way of working analytically that integrates Jungian theory, object relations, and self-psychology. We will have links in the show notes for the complete series, 
as well as more seminars by Dr. Corbett and Dr. Rhines. Well, we, or maybe I should just speak for myself, I've found, especially in my clinical work, that using what I've learned from Jungian theory and what I've learned from Cohutian theory um, has allowed me to do more, to work with more types of people, to um, go a little further than just one theory um, alone. Um, when you think about Jungian therapy, if you look at it in a, in a clinical way for a while, the sort of process of Jungian therapy is to look at, understand, explore manifestations of the unconscious, whatever's coming up, whatever's pushing forward and being expressed. Now, when Jung, when Jung describes this in the kind of classical Jungian way of, of looking at unconscious manifestations is through dreams, um, through the technique he developed of active imagination, through looking at myths and fairy tales, uh, looking at, at um, different cultures, different religions, um, and those are all manifestations of the unconscious. But another way in which the unconscious manifests itself is through relationships and through certain patterns and ways that we all relate to each other. And um, this happens in a therapeutic relationship, just like in, in other sorts of relationships, but it's often very intense in a therapeutic relationship. And uh, what, what Kohlhaas has done has been to, to look at, at that therapeutic relationship and describe certain uh, patterns that he saw over and over and over again. And uh, we're going to talk about those patterns and describe them and look at them as being archetypal in terms of Jungian language. Um, this has been real helpful for me as a therapist because so much of what goes on in the therapy is not just the reporting of dreams, but um, how the dreams are reported to me and um, how the person feels telling me the dream and um, uh, how the person feels being with me in the room. Um, and Jungian therapy has not been as helpful for me in dealing with, with those kinds of unconscious manifestations as, as cohesion theory has been. So that's that's where I'm coming from with it. Maybe I could just go on a little bit on that same theme. But many of us value Jung, uh, Jung very much because he has a transpersonal approach and because you can see the transpersonal background to the individual. And that's very important if you look at the psyche from a religious point of view, which many of us do. But the, the, that's the great strength of it. The problem with it is that you can't ever really divorce the personal from the transpersonal. And, if, and you always need uh, what we call a personalistic psychology. You need an approach to the individual that's based on what goes on between people rather than what goes on between the person and the transpersonal, or between man and God, depending on how you want to say it. But you, you have to have both. And we think that in the classical uh, 
Jungian literature, there was too much emphasis on the transpersonal with some neglect of the personal. And what we try to do is marry, bring the two together, because we don't think they can ever really be separated, but you need really a rather different language, although they, they interpenetrate. So we'll, as Kathy said, we'll look at the, uh, the personalistic material that Kohut describes and try and explain what we think is the transpersonal background to that from a Jungian point of view. I think that will be of interest to people who are in, in, interested in the religious aspects, because that's actually our interest as well. But there's no point in being interested in, in religion and, and knowing a lot about the transpersonal and knowing a lot about Jungian uh, symbolic thought if you don't know how to sit and talk to somebody. So Kohut's very useful for that. The other thing we're going to do, um, it's not in this, but I think we might do it, is the place where Jung talks about the transference is in volume 16, where he likens it to the alchemical process and to the Rosarian pictures. And um, so we might, we might bring them. We together. might be able to yeah. talk about those and in terms of of terms how of they fit into to Kohut's thinking. Yeah. Um, so for people who know volume 16, Jung's work on the transferences in volume 16. What, the book is called The Practice of Psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. And the, the second half of the book is on... Yeah, hopefully we could get to that. Yeah. But we, what we've done is look at those pictures which are alchemical from a Cahoosian point of view. Uh, okay. So that's where we, how we align ourselves. Any comments about that so far? We'd like this to be as yeah, much of an interchange free to, as if possible. If you have questions or everyone has a different uh, amount of exposure to Jung and to Kohut, so... Um, also, as we get along, if you have cases, it would yeah. be useful to bring up mm -hmm. cases. Mm -hmm. Do you have an easy definition of transpersonal? <clears throat> uh. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> Well, it's, it's not an easy question. Um, something which uh, really has two aspects to it. One is something that extends beyond the personal, and uh, another is that it, it, it can be—it's common to all people. Okay. So when we talk about the difference between spirit and soul, we'll we'll go into that some more. Are we ever going to get to spirit and soul? Hopefully, we should try and do that. Mm -hmm. In the sense that spirit is transpersonal and soul is personal, we'll we'll talk about it that way. Yeah. There, there are many. Of, oh, I'm sorry. There's another question. This is, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can actually see neither of you. Here. Not used to disembodied voice. Yeah. Is that better? Okay. okay. Looks like Little Bob. Yeah. You can have other people on the stairway. I don't know. It's a perfectly great. Seems a shame to waste the time. Yeah, there is another chair up here. The price is the same here. Thank you. Come at the end. And there's a chair up front. Oh, classic. There are lots of young analysts who are very interested in personalistic psychologists. Many of them are in Many of them are in Robert Langs. Many of them are interested in Melanie Klein uh, for this reason that they, 
many of us feel that you need some kind of personalistic psychology. And there are lots of points of contact with Jung and Kohut, but uh, as uh, you were pointing out, there are some important differences. Mm -hmm. We'll try and bring them out. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the most interesting points of, uh, of similarity is that, is that Kohut has been, uh, in the psychoanalytic literature, has been regarded as metaphysical and a defector from the psychoanalytic establishment, which of course was exactly Jung's fate uh, in 1912 or whenever that was. Um, um, Kohat, interestingly enough, when he was writing about why there was such uh, anger towards him among the psychoanalytic establishment, said he thought that uh, a lot of the classical analysts in their own training analysis had had such terrible experiences and such poor analytic experiences that they were left with huge narcissistic deficits. So, that, so belonging to a community which which uh, adhere, adhered to a particular philosophy made up for the narcissistic deficit that was never healed during their own analysis. In other words, it just made them feel good to belong to a sort of me too uh, what we would now call a twinship community. We'll talk more about that. And this accounts for the kind of rigid adherence to uh, uh, classical theory and some of the opposition to Kohut nowadays and also, we think, to some of the opposition to Jung in, in his day. Okay, so... Um, but what's interesting is that now people who have trained by Kohut and consider themselves Kohutians uh, put Jung in the same category of um, kind of the black sheep that um, that their own sort of mentor was put into by um, by the classical Freudians. So they haven't healed that they haven't healed yet. That. No, no. Um, there's another very important point of similarity uh, between Jung and Kohut, which is that the um, the issues that Jung broke with Freud about are exactly the same issues that Kohut breaks with mainstream psychoanalysis about. These are the notion of drive and def drive defense psychology. Are you familiar with that theory of drive defense psychology? Drive? Do I, do I, I don't know whether to explain what terms or not. Shall I explain what yeah, There is a theory uh, in classical psychoanalysis which says that um, um, if, this is, if this line represents the unconscious and this represents consciousness, but in the unconscious there are drives, which Freud wrote about as id, sexuality and aggression. And these drives are always trying to break out into consciousness. And that because they're unacceptable to consciousness, we defend against them. And that the whole, a lot of our mental life is the struggle between the wish to be sexual and aggressive and the defense against that. Okay. And that's, in one line, that's what's called drive-defense psychology. Well, and Kohut really gave that up, and that was one of the main things that Jung and Freud broke over, which is very interesting historically. And um, the, the uh, emphasis on uh, a purely sexual theory of neurosis, which was one of the major things that Jung and Freud, I guess people are familiar with this, one of the major things that they broke over, Freud's insistence on the sexual theory of neurosis and Jung's arguing against this. 
And now Kohak comes along uh, and says again that a purely sexual theory won't do of psychopathology. Same point that Jung had made. And um, the um, the uh, importance of the concept of the self, a third point of similarity, which of course Jung stressed and is primary in Kohat as well. Okay. So th- these are these historically these are very very uh, interesting and important uh, similarities and the other thing is the notion of psychic energy Um, you remember that Freud thought this libido or psychic energy was purely uh, sexual and Kohut has a completely different theory of psychic energy so there are lots of important uh, uh, issues okay now uh, where shall we go? Well, we're going to talk here. about the self. Okay. And um, maybe spend most of the time on the self psychological notion of the yeah. self. Okay. Um, so we'll, maybe what we ought to do is present an overview of Kohut's view of the self. Are people familiar with Jung's view of the self? We can go through that too. We can go through both and then then go back more in detail over So then what we have to do is um, we have to go through Kohut's view of the self, then Jung's view of the self, and then try and show how they're the same and different. Which will take some time. Um, Should we start? What should we start with? Why don't we start with Kohut? For Kohat, um, the development of the self, what he calls a cohesive nuclear self, is, um, um, occurs at a certain age, talks about between 18 months and two and a half years, and uh, is um, a necessary step in order to become a kind of healthy functioning person. Um, he actually in a way similar to Jung talks about the self in ways that are difficult to pin down. He says it, it's something that can't really be completely described. Um, he calls it uh, a felt center of initiative and motivation. Um, a, a sort of place inside where one feels continuous in space and in time. Um, it's made up of, of intrapsychic structures, memories um, that one calls one's own and that you identify as yourself. Um, but it's developed by accretion. Right. It's, 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 develop, it's developed. It, it forms at a certain age, and he feels that it develops along two poles that we'll get into more into detail about, um, poles of mirroring and poles of idealization. And he feels that these are two sort of innate developmental lines that unfold within each of us um, that have to be met by objects what he calls self-objects in the environment and that we have this need to be mirrored and this need to idealize which we'll go into a little bit more and we 
we have to have these functions provided for us by this outer self object and the way our own self is formed is by these experiences of being mirrored experiences of idealizing experiences of an empathic self object that we internalize bit by bit so that we kind of build this structure within ourselves that that is a self that can then perform these functions for ourselves so we don't have to have these objects in the outer world so that's the first major point of difference between uh, Jung and Kohat that that Kohat says the self is is built up from an outside experience which is internalized now the place where where there's a similarity is this idea that there's this innate um, need, innate pattern these innate poles along which development proceeds mm-hmm. uh, that's beginning to sound a little Jungian because that's that's speaking of something that isn't built up but that's something but of something that's that's right there at birth and that um, gradually unfolds and has to be met by the environment. So is that a clear difference that for Jung the self is just there at birth and for Kohat it's, it's built up by accretion by experience okay so when Kohat talks about these two poles, uh, which we'll deal with in detail, the mirroring and idealizing poles of the self, he has no explanation for where they come mm-hmm. from. He doesn't try and explain where they come from. And if you push to Kohushin mm-hmm. and say, where do they come from, where do they come from, where do they come from, they will get annoyed with you and say it's wired into the brain. It's hardwired. Okay. But the problem with that view is that it reduces these intensely psychological needs to brain and many of us would object to that for obvious philosophical reasons okay so uh, but the fact that he says there are innate psychological needs is a similarity with Jung's notion of of an innate self present with birth except that um, for Jung that innate self is far more complex than just these two things that Kohler talks about but I doubt whether Jung would have argued that these things that Kohut talks about are certainly part of it. Mm-hmm. So we think that Kohut has just gotten onto two parts of Jung's self, but he's not talking about the same thing exactly. Okay, is that a clear difference? Uh, yeah. It's it's difficult because they're both using the same word self to describe. Uh, really very different concepts and the concepts meet but um, but they're different and that's why you'll often see in the Jungian literature people talking about the Jungian self and capitalizing it and that's to sort of signify this your question is this transpersonal aspect to it this sort of larger uh, common st- structural aspect to it um, and then you'll see Jungians talk about the personal self or the little less self and they're often talking more there about the, the concept that Kohut has described. So if you hear us talk about big S self, little less self, when we talk about big S self we mean transpersonal self, okay, which is very similar to the notion of Atman Brahman, people who know that. It's not quite the same as uh, in that ballpark. And when we talk about small S self or personal self, we, we mean me and you. Okay. Look, when, when Kohat 
the one of the ways that Coat's notion of the little as self is very important is that you'll see people um, you'll you'll have patients who don't who don't have that that structure didn't ever form and it's a little hard to imagine because we we kind of take it for granted that we are who we are and, and we're here today and we were there yesterday and those two things are connected um, but when this structure doesn't develop uh, people end up without that sense um, if, you, if you've ever had the experience of being lost um, if you've ever been tremendously anxious in a foreign country lost not knowing mm-hmm, the language mm-hmm. you ever had that experience mm-hmm. that's when you don't have a sense of self mm-hmm. it shows you how dependent we are on the surroundings for a cohesive sense of self mm-hmm. or if, if you've ever uh, taken you know, hallucinogenic drugs or if you've ever had experiences where you've become terribly confused or anxious or lost you've uh, lost sense of meaning if you've been doing something that felt like the purpose of your life and the meaning of your life and uh, then you begin to doubt it you've experienced tremendous doubts about who you are or, or what what purpose you have for being here those kinds of experiences are are similar to what Kohat talks about in terms of loss of self fragmentation of self lack of a nuclear self and they're also the same as what the primitive people call loss of soul. Loss of soul. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, we think that when primitive people are talking about loss of soul, they're talking about fragmentation of the self, states of <coughs> de- de- depression, depletion, exhaustion, fragmentation. Anyway, maybe we ought to go on with our uh, the two poems. Yeah, why don't you do that? Should I do the mirror? Mm-hmm. I have one question. Yeah. Is, would, that, would the ego for Kohut be synonymous, I mean, excuse me, the self for Kohut? Would that be synonymous with the ego? I mean, is it the conscious? Yeah. It's similar, but not synonymous, because Kohut's self is both conscious and unconscious, contains uh, both. Um, but the idea of the ego as being what the I-ness, the identity, um, in that way it's similar. The Cahusians have given up the use of the word ego, they never use it anymore. They say the Jungian usage. Jungians use it, but they mean something different by it. The Cahusians say it's a redundant word because it doesn't say anything. If you can talk about the person, you may as well talk about the, the person, which is the self. And. Um, but I, I assume that for Jung, the self was something you really never could get to. Fully. Fully. Mm-hmm. Fully. Yeah, that's an important qualifier because you can to some extent. Um, the ego for Jung means the field of personal consciousness. Okay. And so that's a rather narrow meaning. But, uh, so in self-psychology, the cohesions don't use the term ego. If you want a discussion of this, it's in Arnold Goldberg's book, Goldberg and Ghetto, Models of the Mind, where they talk about these two concepts being at different levels of abstraction, having different usefulness and different applications. But but when we talk about personal self, um, to to go into this in great detail would be a long story, but for, for, for a lot of the ego psychologists, the self was a representation within the ego, and the ego was superordinate. Okay? 
But for the self-psychologist, the self is superordinate. It's not simply a representation, and the ego is just redundant. Okay, and the, so the personal self includes the, the the person, the body, consciousness, and unconscious. And I suppose it would include what we call ego functions, except they never they think that's a redundant term. See. Any other questions? Are we clear so far? So. So let me talk a little bit about uh, these two poles. Uh, in his first book, he talked about a bipolar self. And he said, uh, later on, he added a third pole, not quite a pole to it. Um, he said that um, in the child, uh, on this side, uh, there is uh, what he called archaic grandiosity, which is roughly synonymous with exhibitionism. Okay. And this is an innate need for the child, essentially, to show off and be seen for who it is. Um, and um, uh, as we said before, uh, he doesn't have an explanation for where this comes from. We'll try and give you an archetypal explanation because we think this is correct. We think he's right about this, but it's grounded archetypally. Archetypally means transpersonally. Um, now, um, what he says has to happen is that this in the child has to be mirrored. Uh, and what he means by mirror is that, um, to give an example, a little girl runs in and wearing her new dress and says, look at me, aren't I pretty? And she's joyful and happy and full of herself. And the, the correct mirroring response to that is for the mirroring person to say, yes, darling, you're gorgeous, you're pretty, and share the child's joy and reflect it back to her. Okay? That's what's known by... And now, there are a million examples. That was a, that's a gross example. It begins right in infancy, when the infant looks at the mother and sees something which reflects its own inner sense of joy back to it. Um, and this experience of being mirrored occurs at all developmental stages. So the old oral, anal, genital, phallic stuff that we all were force-fed when we were growing up, all that stuff is subsumed in this way. Uh, for instance, the kid goes to the bowel, goes to the potty training, goes to the toilet, have a bowel movement. The mirroring response is, oh boy, that's wonderful, you got it in the potty and not in your diaper. Okay. That was, so all these things can be, uh, are all these, what used to be called, you, where so much importance used to be attached, and now it's just subsumed under these general categories. Okay. So you mirror constantly. And what happens to this need is it just gets more mature. It never dies away. According to this theory, you, there's always a need for mirroring, because this, this thing in us that wants to be seen never really goes away. So, um, as I sit here now, if you look at me and nod occasionally, that's a mature mirror, okay? But the theory says that my need for that has never gone away fully, okay? It might be sublimated or neutralized so that um, uh, as I teach, it's really my archaic grandiosity appearing in this uh, sublimated or neutralized form. I don't know if it's neutralized or sublimated. <laughs> Is the original thing still obvious? The idea is that uh, archaic means infantile. This is very roughly speaking, and it should slowly mature, so that when you get to be an adult, if this has gone well, 
your needs are no longer archaic so that you're not hungry for it, dying for it and crushed if you don't get it mm-hmm. but that you still need it at a mature level in other words it would be unbearable to come in here and have everybody totally stony faced okay <laughs> then it would be so there's a need now um, but, but when there's a defect there's, a defect arises when it wasn't met in childhood so if there were gross well, not so gross, gross or subtle failures to the extent that, that this process was not met in childhood, that person will grow up relatively more or less mirror hungry, hungry for mirroring and if it was grossly unmet, if there was nobody there to mirror back the child's joy and sense of self-importance then the child, now an adult will, will go around hungry for that and needing always needing applause, always needing patting on the back you know, always needing uh, someone to tell them they're okay. okay. So. Uh, yeah, does the uh, does this infantile need include um, mirroring of uh, unhappy or unacceptable? Mm-hmm. Yes. Or yes. Let me Thank you for mentioning. Mm-hmm. The the theory says this that the, the way the first of all the adult who's doing this for the child is called a self-object. That's one word. It's not hyphenated. And the self-object is. is Unlike the, the old psychoanalytic word object meant another person who, on whom you would discharge or satisfy your drive, the object of the drive. The self-object is, is an object who is experienced by the child as carrying out a function, like mirroring, but there are others, which the child cannot do for himself. Okay. So it is as if the other person is an extension of myself, to the extent that I need them to do something for me that I can't do for myself. It's like an arm or a leg where you just, it's like a part of you that does something for you. Well, the self-object does that for you. You can't mirror yourself. Um, well, maybe you can. But well, you can. You can't as a baby. As a baby. Because you have no uh, reference point. You, you yeah. haven't developed a central point that you can used to reflect upon yourself. Uh, in the right. Jungian terms, you have no ego-self axis. You have no point from which you can stand and then reflect upon who you are. Right, but in infancy, the child absolutely needs the, the self-object to do mm-hmm. something that he cannot do for himself. Okay, so that's the, so this, so the adult, and it doesn't have to be, it can be any adult, mother, father, whoever's mm-hmm. around. So the mirroring self-object is carrying out this essential function. Now, the way the self-object does this is through a process of tuning in to the child, okay? And it doesn't, and it tunes into the child. The self-object tunes into the child's affect, to the child's feelings, be they happy or sad or whatever they are, through this process that is called empathy. Okay? So a good self-object is an empathic self-object, and that means that their resonance emotionally with the child is good that you have a sense of what's going on in the kid and you, you respond in, in a way that resonate, resonates just with that. So if the kid's upset, the resonance will be, oh, you poor thing, uh, you know, what can I do to help, or whatever it is. It doesn't matter what the affect is, it's the resonance that's important. And that, so that the good self-object is an, is an empathically attuned self-object. And an unempathic self-object misses the point. The, the example that comes to mind from Kohat is that the kid who comes from home comes to home from school excited about some school project going like this 
and, and instead of the mother picking up the excitement about the school project, she says, don't talk with your hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you see the empathic miss, where mm-hmm. instead of tuning into the child's joy and excitement, she responds to just a mm-hmm. part of the child, which corresponds to her own narcissistic need for order or whatever her shtick was. But it, it wasn't to tune into what the mm-hmm. child needed. Okay. And when this happens, if you can imagine that experience, uh, the the child is in filled with tremendous shame because mm-hmm. it's it's full of excitement. It's full of, full it, of itself. Full of archaic exhibitionistic energy. And to have that not met, to have that uh, dampened down, pushed away, it, it's then filled filled with shame. So you'll see people who have problems in this area of just tremendous shame about their own um, feelings and thoughts and. Um, excitement mm-hmm. and you can't stand being excited you can't stand being called on in class mm-hmm. being asked to uh, stand up and talk or something because it fills them with this kind of exhibitionistic energies which were forbidden in childhood and which were associated with shame so it's one of the causes of shyness it's not the only cause it's one of the causes of shyness okay. you see how that would happen if that was always crushed so that's the notion of the, mirror, of the mirroring self-object. And now the theory says that when the mother, let's say the, the child is in some emotional state and the mother tunes in and there's this resonance, then the child's internal state is mirrored, reflected, confirmed by the mother or father. And the theory says that then a piece of the self is formed in the child because that experience is, so to speak, taken into the child. It's as if what the kid puts out is received, mirrored, and then the kid can take it back and say, ah, yes, that happened, and that's a piece of me. Okay, and that is called, in Kohar, transmuting internalization, which is a ridiculous term. (laughs) Transmuting internalization. And Kohar says that when you eat hamburger, you don't turn into a cow you turn into you, okay? And these, these self-object needs are uh, analogously, the self-object need is like a nutrient, it's like a psychological equivalent of a nutrient, like a piece of protein, which you make the, yourself out of. You get the idea, when you have one of these experiences, it's as if you'd, your body had eaten something it needed to make some of you, so that that is used to make some of you. So the outer experience is internalized and a piece of self-structure is made. It's transmuted in that it's not taken in whole. It's not interjected as oh, this whole Thank piece you. that you identify with. Change. It's, it's changed. It's made a part of you yeah. um, as opposed to just being a solid piece of mother that you you In other words, in. it's not a gross identification where you just copy. Which is, I think, one of the places where Kohut really added something and, and described the process yeah. uh, a little differently. Is this clear so far? This is are you clear how this is different from identity. Historically, the term transmuting internalization has its precedent in James Strachey's use of the notion of transmuting interpretation. So right, which will cause change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so you see that's just one tiny example of how the personal self is, is built up by accretion from an, from, a, from an experience. 
with another person. Is that more clear? Well, I've always been a little unclear about, about the meaning of the word. I guess you could give some kind of example. Of which word? Of, I'm sorry, transmuting internalization. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's a well, great term. Um, um, one way to think about it is that this pole, what this leads to, if this develops as it should, is it leads to a sense of healthy ambition. Yeah, I was going to come to um, that. Maybe I could just and go on with my... Because yeah. one way to think of it is that, uh, let's say your father was um, a doctor, um, you wouldn't decide to be a doctor, which would be a, an identification, but you would internalize... Um, the sense that one could be what one wants to, one can be something powerful, um, but you would change it. It would, it would be different inside of you than it is inside of him. It would have its own character. Um, um, you didn't, it would become a part of, of your life. So it's not just a plain identification, it's like a personalization. That's why he calls mm -hmm. it transmuting, because mm -hmm. it changes as it comes in. Mm -hmm. So that he, your dad's ambitious, you're ambitious, but his ambition goes into medicine, yours goes into the piano. Mm -hmm. you, what you get, what, um, you see the point. It's, it's like, like metabolism. When you eat something, it's, it's, it's broken down yeah. into the, the basic proteins and then, and then, rebuilt. then rebuilt into your own cells. That's what he's trying to say. You see the difference between that and just identification. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what he says is that this... Um, is eventually, as Kathy says, will become healthy ambition and healthy normal self-esteem. Because um, you'll have it, you have innumerable experiences, let's say, of empathic, accurate mirroring. Um, and that will lead to a sense of, you know, if this joy and goodness I feel inside me is being mirrored and met and reflected back, then I must be really worth something, I must be really okay. You can see how if that happens to the kid enough, they would grow up with, 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 health, with healthy self-esteem and ambition in the sense that I can do, I am somebody, somebody valuable. And how if that goes wrong, yeah. How is that different then from the Winnicottian idea of good enough mothering resulting in feeling good enough? I mean, in terms of these internalizations, I guess I still don't see here how self-psychology differs from object relations. Oh, well, you stand to ask four questions. The difference from logic, you want to do that? Well, I'll do the first part in terms of Winnicott's good enough okay, mothering. Yeah, you can do the second part. Um, anything where it says object relations, you can do that part. Um, uh, I think that Winnicott, I think this is a part of good enough mothering. And that good enough mothering is a broad term that uh, includes not only mirroring but also idealization which we'll talk about next and many people feel that Kohut did not should have credited Winnicott in in the development of his ideas which he doesn't do but um, there are many many similarities um, the trans Winnicott's notion of the transitional space the transitional object if you look at that it's very similar to the idea of a self-object in that when we talk about a self-object, we're not we're in this kind of gray area where it is another person out there, but the child isn't experiencing that person as another person. 
they're experiencing that person as if she's a, a an appendage, as if she's part of an, an extension. And um, cohesions are very strong on the, reminding us all that they're an intrapsychic theory. It's an intrapsychic theory, not interpersonal, and that it's it's really the the um, the child's. They wouldn't like the word fantasy, but the the child's experience of the other um, that that is is what's important. And that, that's a terribly important point. See, it's not exactly outer because you're not really an extension of me. But mm-hmm. if I experience you intrapsychically as an extension of me, then we're into Winnicott. It's mm-hmm. not fully inner, it's not fully outer. Mm-hmm. You see how the similarity is. And of course in Jung, Jung, Jung well. we call that the imaginatio. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that takes us into the whole realm of religion and, and the importance of the imaginal and Corbin and links this, I mean not the Kohat knew any of this, but, but it links the, the whole tradition of the importance of the imagination, uh, you know, which is a realm it's hard to say where it's in quotes where the imagination is. It links us with William Blake. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, we think the imaginatio mm-hmm. is terribly important. We think that's where the whole of shamanism occurs. And it's a, we think that's a very real. Uh, we, we don't know what to call it because it's not really a place. You see, it doesn't have spatial reality, but it's extremely important and real. Anyway, the self-object experience is wherever that is. That's where it is. It's not exactly outer, it's not exactly inner. Isn't that what anthropologists call the liminal? No, it's not the liminal. Um, when they talk about liminal, well, as I understand liminal, they're talking about um, the individual developmentally being the threshold between two developmental uh, points. Oh, I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. Intrapsychic. That's, that's another discussion, perhaps. Yeah. But that's that's where ritual and religion mm-hmm. often occurs. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. You're right. In sacred time and space. Mm-hmm. We talk, yes. Mm-hmm. Of course, the imaginatio is very similar to sacred time and space, a la Iliade and everybody else. And certainly, that's where ritual occurs. And that certainly is mm-hmm. liminal. Yeah. If we get off onto that, we'll be here for a week. We can go into the class next door. <laughs> um, the, 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 the second um, point was, just briefly, the reason this is not an object relations theory is that object relations theory is still essentially drive theory. Okay, where the object is used, I mean, uh, certainly in classical theory to discharge a drive, and in the British object relations theory where the, the, ob- where the drive, the, uh, relationship seeking is the drive, yeah. But um, in, to cut a long story short, in self-psychology the drives are only seen when the self is falling apart. And if the self is well put together you don't see the drives. And I mean, I'm going to overstate it slightly. For the self-psychologist, all that drive stuff is, is all the result of the self Failures in empathy. Failures. So if the unfolding needs are met, then there's no... You don't see drive. If you said something to me grossly unempathic, and I got in a rage, there you'd see my drive. But that's because myself fell apart because of your lack, because you failed me as a mirroring self-object. But if you were accurate and empathic and made me feel okay, you wouldn't see that drive. So you only see the drive. So see, they've, they've just included all that drive stuff. Uh, which is enraged everybody. <laughs> if she wasn't empathic and you 
however, were mirrored properly, yeah. you would need to rage, right? Well, you see, I wouldn't need to get... It, de mm -hmm. it depends how well put together I am. Well, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me answer okay. that now. That's a very important okay. point. To the extent that this, that this process fails, there are lacunae in the structure of the self. The self, instead of being a piece of cheese, a piece of Swiss cheese, with bigger or smaller holes. And every time there's an empathic failure from the parent, not just one, you don't have to worry about getting it right every time, but repeatedly, okay? Well, I've got to talk about uh, traumatic versus um, assimilable, uh, optimal... Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, should we do that now or later? Anyway, to the, ex to the extent that, the, that there's repeated traumatic failures, okay, the self forms with a hole in it, with a defect in it, okay? And so, uh, a self that has a lot of these defects in it, because mirroring, let's say, was so bad, is a fragile self. And that's the restoring that Kohat talks about in the second book, the restoration, that the therapy fills in those holes. And we'll talk about this, how the transference fill those, fills those in. Okay, but is that is that clear? So if I if I had a if myself was a piece of Swiss cheese, and every time I said something, it felt like this is so important for you to agree with me, because I'm really on the line here, and you disagree with me. You said no, that's wrong. Then if I fell apart, then you'd see this narcissistic rage. That would mean diagnostically that I had a very fragilely put together self and that I've always feel on the line when my opinion is being doubted you see okay but if I was well put together and you could just disagree with me and I wouldn't feel it was any skin off my nose and it would be okay because I was well enough put together then I wouldn't fragment and I wouldn't get in a rage okay so there's a difference between narcissistic rage and primary are you saying there's a difference between Linnaka and, uh, and Kohat in the way they view it as this, this, this interpsychic experience? Um, I, I kind of got lost in that. Winnicott and Kohat are similar in that they view it, they both view it as an interpsychic experience. Yes, that's a place but where they're similar. We think filled out Winnicott. Well, Winnicott says good enough mothering, sure, but what is What does that mean? And Kohat, we think, is just uh, mm -hmm. giving some examples of what they're doing, yeah. such as one of them. Mm -hmm. One of the, I guess, one thing to add, and you started to get into it a little bit, the traumatic versus, versus assimilable failures, is that um, in this process of the kind of refining and maturing of this archaic grandiosity, there are places where the parent is going to fail, or it's going to be experienced as failure. Um, if the child's terribly excited and starts to dart out across the street in front of a car and the parent, you know, screams at it to stop, that, that might be experienced by the child as, a, as some sort of failure or squashing or whatever, but it, it, it was necessary. And many of the Kohushans believe that it's actually in the failures that inner structure is born, that it's, it's in the tiny little failures in mirroring that one then has to take on that, that task oneself. 
and um, this is what you'll see often in, in therapy, in the process of therapy, which, which we'll get into but later. But the failure must not be traumatic. The, the failure has to be manageable, and it has to take place within the context of, of success, so that the child generally feels mirrored, knows what, what that is, can depend on the parent to do that, so that when the parent inevitably fails in, in these small ways, the child isn't totally traumatized and the child can, in a sense, do that for itself, begin to, to develop the capacity to do that for itself. Oh, well, if you want to look at my homework, I guess I'll have to realize it's okay myself. I'll put it on the refrigerator, right. you know, I'll, I'll put it on the bulletin board. It's There's a piece of structure built based on a, a, an assimilable, well, what he calls optimal dissolutionment. Optimal meaning. Frustration. Optimal frustration. More dissolution. Yeah. Really. But it, it's manageable by the kid. It doesn't cause damage. That's distinct from these examples I gave, like the don't talk with your hands, which is crushing, which is unmanageable. And that causes damage. The first one causes growth. The second, the, the mm -hmm. traumatic one causes mm -hmm. pathology. And in the transference, which we'll talk about, you get the same thing. You get... You get um, empathic failures that are manageable and structure building you get empathy which is also structure building when it's accurate and you get you can repeat severe traumata in the transference too which but you can also heal structural damage in the transference by being empathically correct in an individual who when they were a child was massively traumatized if you don't manage to repeat the same thing which one is always tempted to do of course the nature of the transference being what it is we'll talk about that should, should we um can we take a take break, a break before we do idealization can we take a real 10 minute break <laughs> we'll get there before the shaman <laughs> a couple of things that came up during the break um the fact that we have people from such varied backgrounds here and tremendously different in terms of exposure to um, these ideas. Um, I think we'll keep trying to talk sort of in the middle line of it all. And I think for people who this is real new, that the initial hurdle is the language and just, you know, the, the way the words are used and what the words mean. And I think that we'll go over and over and over that um, because we'll keep using these words. So just ask. If we use a word or a concept, it just, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Be sure to ask. Be sure you won't be alone. You want to do the other? Yeah. But then we have to do the mirror. The, uh, the example? Yeah, the okay. Okay. Yeah, you have to have examples. Okay. Um, we'll start back with these two poles. The next pole that Coet talked about is the pole of idealization. It's kind of an odd word for this. He also talks about the um, ideal parental imago. And this is a line of development that he sees as paralleling this line of development of archaic grandiosity. And what he's referring to here is the need in a baby, if you imagine yourself a small baby, to have the sense of there being someone there or something there that's larger 
and stronger and knows what's going on and can calm it and soothe it and organize it and feed it and do those kind of overarching functions that the, that the baby can't do for itself. Um, and Kohut calls this idealization, that, that that process is where the child is able to view the parent in this idealizing way. The child is able to look up to the parent and see in the parent this capacity. Um, he also describes it as um, the capacity of, of the parent to uh, be imbued with certain values and, and ideals and, and goals and uh, to the, the child is able to see the parent as a kind of carrier of meaning and purpose and, and goals and, and values. Um, Can I just interject? So there's a pair of opposites here which gets important when we talk mm -hmm. about Jung. Here the kid feels all the goodness and wonderfulness is inside me. And here the kid feels all the wonderfulness he's got it. He's out there. He's out there. Um, and you'll see this talked about in, in Jung in terms of projection of the self onto someone else. And you, you see that process often in therapy where the patient needs to, to project, to put that goodness and strength and power and knowledge onto the therapist. Um, and the, the theory is that if the parent allows the child to do this, then slowly the child is able to internalize that sense of order and organization and meaning and value, is able to, to have that inside itself and carry that for itself. Um, to the extent that that doesn't happen, what that will often look like down here is one way in which it's seen is, is in people who um, have no ability to soothe themselves, to calm themselves down, to um, order their own affects, and they get flooded with these strong, strong affects, which uh, will often lead into to things like alcohol or substance abuse because the person needs something out there to um, um, calm itself down. Um, it's almost like the, the person idealizes the drug, um, idealizes the substance and, substance and sees it as the um, thing on which it can depend. It's the, the object that's, that's always there and that won't that ever let it down. Right, right. And yeah, and, and, and also the, um, the the capacity to um, deal with impulses. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, when you think about a, a little <coughs> baby that that um, um, the I guess the fantasy is, and when you watch little babies, that, that they are filled filled with intense feelings and needs and physiological kinds of experiences that it has no way of um, understanding or responding to and that um, it needs to know that there's someone out there who, who will feed it, will soothe it, um, will help it organize itself, will teach it. Um, now, when this develops in a healthy way, the, the kind of sublimated form of this is um, um, 
it's that sense of if you've ever had a, a, a teacher or, or someone <coughs> whom you admired and being around them uh, made you feel better, made you feel like you, um, a good teacher is, is an object, is a person who can be idealized, who will allow themselves to be idealized and will then impart to you the fact that, that you can learn, make you feel that you can learn, that, um, um, that you can um, um, be as good as, as he is. And this is that process in the, when you look at the, the parent and the child, of the child beginning to take in some of the parental functions and the parental values. You also see people who um, end up kind of aimless and uh, have no internal sense of, of goal or purpose. Um, kind of emptiness inside where there, there, there's no meaning. Um, that's sort of the other direction that this can, can take when it isn't handled in, in an optimal way. So we should give an example. Uh, the kid comes home and says to father, uh, I just told all my friends that you were the greatest father on the block. There's the idealization. Okay. Now, the, the, uh, the good idealizing self-object father, even though he knows he might not be what the kid is assuming him to be, will just nod, smile, and sort of go along with it. Whereas the uh, poor self-object father will say, oh, shucks, and be embarrassed, and not accept the idealization. Okay, and that's how it can, one of the ways it can fail. Okay. And of course, this gets repeated in therapy all the time, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, so, any questions about idealizing? Is there any sense in the, in Kohat that uh, in their unhealthy manifestations of these two poles, the yeah. idealization of grandiosity, that one is in a way worse than the other. I mean, many times the grandiosity might be more precarious a statement idealization because at least you've got something out there that you can attach to. Grandiosity might yeah, be... Where grandiosity would be like inflation. There's yeah. there's nothing that you're really attached to. You're sort of... But when you have a failure of the idealizing pole, then... Um, you're very drifty and very aimless. You, you see, you don't have goals and values. Um, when you're a failure of this pole, you're bursting with your own self-importance. I guess it depends which you prefer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, one thing, I mean, we were talking about failures, and this pole is leading to shyness and, the, you know, uh, but it can also lead to um, uh, exhibitionism and uh, kind of frantic attempts to get that grandiosity mirrored and, um, and yet underneath that um, grandiosity is very poor self-esteem and I guess the place where that ties in with Jungian theory is when Jungians use the word inflated um, it's when someone is, is identified with that archaic we'll grandiosity. Kohat um, doesn't uh, distinguish between any failures in either of these leading to more pathological uh, problems. Um, yeah, he, he sees them as these two separate poles that are going along and are of equal importance. He, he talks about the fact that if you have failures here, 
uh, he'll describe um, patients that had terrible failures in this pole and that a particular period in their life they kind of realized that and they moved over to this pole and compensated so that they um, their personality then becomes more formed around this pole of development and maybe they um, their parent is not as bad at being idealized as at mirroring. So a self-object can be very good at one mm -hmm. not at the other. So like, uh, let's say you have a kid who's getting very good mirroring until the Oedipal period from the mother. But the, because of the mother's own difficulty, she can't mirror. Well, we could, the whole Oedipal thing takes on a whole different light in this theory, but we'll do it sometime. But she can't mirror him adequately during the Oedipal transit. Because uh, of maybe her because of problems her own, of sexuality. Because of her own difficulties. But there's a brilliant academic father in the family, you know, and the kid realizes that he can look up to his father, and fortunately he's bright himself, so he gets onto this idealizing of father, and I'm going to be uh, a lawyer or whatever it is, just like daddy, and he idealizes his father, so he moves, because that stops for him because the mother won't carry it anymore. So he moves over to the other pole, becomes a brilliant scholar, and that develops what we call, or Koha calls, a compensatory structure, where, let's say, his great scholarship is a compensatory structure for a defect in early mirroring. Okay. Uh, well, that's just one example. But yeah. Yeah, and yet, it seems for health, they need each other. They need mm -hmm. to be an oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. if you say to the boy, yeah. you know, when he says to the father, you know, you're the greatest dad, yeah. and you, you know, accept right. it, then that means that he's the luckiest. Or oh, sure, because I'm a part of that. Right. That's mm -hmm. about, for, when mm -hmm. you idealize someone, you really want to be a part of them. And if you can't get to them, it causes all kinds of problems. Mm -hmm. If you look at Freud, see, this is this self development scheme in Kohart is uh, what it was initially called narcissistic development which really means the development of the self and um, uh, so narcissism in this lang language has to do with the development of a personal self it's not no longer pathological see in Freud there was a YouTube theory and Freud said if you took object love the love of another person okay and narcissism love of yourself Stop me if I say something that's incomprehensible. When one goes up, the other goes down. So, so that to the extent that you're not involved in yourself, you can love another person. And to the extent that you are engrossed in yourself, you're not loving the other person. Okay? So this is object love and hate, and this is narcissism and all that. Koha comes along and says, no, these two things are totally different lines of development. And object love and hate, and all that Oedipal stuff that we were all brought up on, is going on. And this narcissistic self-development is going on, and they're not the same thing. Okay, they intertwine, but they are not the same thing. A radical departure from Freud. Okay, but you know any Jungian would just shrug at that. That's obvious. <laughs> so, but that was a radical departure. Does the whole Oedipal thing become, in a sense, subordinate to the Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, just briefly, the problem with the Oedipal transit, uh, I guess I don't know if we'll ever have time to cover this, is not the child's drive towards the opposite sex parents, but how that parent receives them, whether they can be joyfully received, mirrored, and, and whatnot, and whether the sexuality, which is a reflection of the child's 
good feelings of who he is and whatnot, how that's mirrored and received, and whether, the, say, if it's a boy, whether the father can be really idealized at that time. And those are the critical things, not the raw drive. You don't, it's not just that you want to screw your mother. What you want is to be seen, you know, all that good stuff to be seen, okay? And if that works properly, then you know how the superego is formed based on the ethical transit. Yeah? Am I talking Greek? If that works properly, then the superego, contents of the superego are idealized, okay? Um, well, it's kind of a long story to go into, but that, but he's, he's made the Oedipal period just just another phase in which these processes have to be uh, properly handled. You see. In, in like in the in the side of aggression, Kohat talks about the fact that what's happening in this Oedipal period is um, an emerging of the child's healthy assertiveness, mm-hmm. and it's coming from that. Uh, developed sense of self and that if that is not mirrored properly or accepted or channeled by an idealized parent that that turns into aggression that that can break down into aggression and that that the so-called sexuality is really just the child's love and joy and um, attraction towards at that particular developmental period that's how it just expresses itself In other words, then the conflicts at the Oedipal level really reflect these more, they're more these fundamental. Earlier, mm-hmm. And there is yeah. no such thing really as an Oedipal conflict. Is no. Well, no, although really it works. might be that it's at that stage that these break, that, that your break parents out. can't do it. Because the parent can't handle the kid's energy, the kid's mm-hmm. sexual energy coming at them. Mm-hmm. If they can't handle it, then there's a failure. But it's a failure at the Oedipal stage. But it can be a failure at the toilet training stage or or at some other stage mm-hmm. earlier on. It's just that some parents can handle it till a certain thing happens and then it falls apart. Depends what where the parent's problem is. Uh-huh. One other thing, just a uh, way of qualification. Uh, you were talking about compensation for mm-hmm. this function of some kind. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering whether, uh, to what extent that that exists between grandiosity and idealization. I mean, you use the youth. Yeah, well, we were trying to give an example mm-hmm. of that. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm still not entirely clear. There's more of one and less of the other. Oh. It shouldn't. No. Um, this this is not a you two. This, this, is, this is two separate lines of development. No, it's an interesting idea, the effect of compensation. If you think about it in Jungian terms, because you can look upon these as Lionel already mentioned this as a pair of opposites here all the goodness is in you here all the goodness is on someone else now are those really opposites or are those um, yeah. um, complementary yeah. yeah and yeah. you know Jung was very big on everything's these pairs of opposites and yeah. um, we're, we're a little worried about that yeah. so let's right. <laughs> um, well there's a middle it's wrong to call it a pole. Um, Kilner talks about a bridging. Um, what, what's the exact phrase? Uh, arc. The arc. arc. The arc, which links them. Um, and, and this is the, the child's innate talents and abilities. So it forms a sort of third factor. Okay. Innate talents and abilities. So, so, so the way that work would be, for instance, suppose that if if this works properly, if this side works properly you have ambition. If this side works properly, you know exactly what you're going to do with your ambition. But you have to have talents and abilities to bridge that. So what I mean is, 
suppose you're born with the talents and abilities to become a, a concert pianist okay that's this middle pole of innate talents and abilities let's just use that as an example if you have if your archaic grandiosity is mirrored properly then you'll have the ambition that will push you into everything that you need to do that so you've got the ambition you've got the talents but if there's a failure of idealization you'll you'll never have any sense of goal and what to do with your talents and your ambition and you'll just drift on the other hand if you've got the goal and you know you want to become a concert pianist and you know that you've got the talents because you're born with it but this pole fails you don't have enough ambition then you won't have enough push so for it all to work properly it's your ambition your talents will be pushed by your ambition into a particular goal you see how it fits together but you've got to be reasonably together and obviously if you don't have the talents then you can have all the ambition and all the goals in the world it won't work if you haven't got the talents so you have to that's how they bridge the two you see is that clear and um, and uh, in therapy uh, this leads to a third kind of transference this leads to a mirror transference an idealizing transference and this leads to what's called a twinship transference we'll talk more about those uh, where you want the therapist to be the same as you okay. um, so that's kind of a, a lot there any questions? why Kohat would assume ambition is a natural outcome of mirroring that is why, if one ha has been satisfied and there's a balance, need there be any ambition? And, uh -huh. of course, many people who have made a mark in the world yeah. were obviously filled by compensatory needs. Oh, yeah. Well, a lot of people who are tremendously ambitious are doing it as a compensation or as a, as a, as a defense against a feeling of inferiority or to cope with a feeling of inadequacy or something. Mm -hmm. But you see, it has a very different quality. <coughs> when you talk to somebody who's just naturally talented, and they just do what they do and they're good at it, that is very different than somebody who's kind of hungry for your approval, even though they might also be naturally talented. But to do what one does well doesn't yeah. mean, in fact, really it might mean I think ambition might have been an unfortunate choice of words. He he chose that, and he and he qualifies it by talking about healthy ambition. But self-esteem might be a better word for it. Um, and the sense that that um, one can accomplish. It's competence. Competence. Yeah. Well, it is true. Sort of it's a very different Maybe it's a bad word. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. She just mentioned the, the sense of joyfulness in one's accomplishment. Oh, that's Rather good. than ambition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. Most of life would be a perfect example of the combination of all these things, wouldn't it? Well, yes. I and mean, he's got um, he a, lot of, a lot of a lot of talent. Yeah. Which did he idealize? Yeah. Well, who did he idealize? His father. He idealized his father. Well, he, he struggled to idealize his father. Yeah. Yeah. To maintain it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you see the defects. His father was very supportive. Oh no, he was very narcissistic. He was bringing his son all around and putting him on pianos and 
Well, I think one way to, 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 to look at this is that Coed also talks about phase-appropriate mirroring and phase-appropriate idealization, yeah. meaning that um, there, there are certain types of, and qualities and ways of mirroring that are appropriate at different stages of development and that it, it's not appropriate to, to push a, a maybe a two-year-old into ballet lessons and say, you know, you're, you're great, you're the world's greatest dancer or whatever, um, that might be more appropriate as the child has developed and is showing some evidence of, of talent. If it's fake or phony or coming out of their own need to have uh, the most brilliant child or the most talented child, then it, it's not trouble. appropriate yeah. to the place where the child is. Let me get into Alice Miller, where the parents using the child for their own needs. There's also the, the idea that, that this archaic grandiosity has to be tempered and matured and refined. And through failures. Through uh, failures. failures. You're not that great. And you may think you're wonderful, but occasionally you discover unpleasantly that you're not that <laughs> Well, those are, if they're phase appropriate and, and tolerable. And being doing have to be distinguished yeah. then. One can fail efforts but, but still be okay. You know, something makes mm -hmm. us go to school and spend 25 years getting hundreds of degrees. I mean, and, and something on this side, whatever if you want to call it. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. We'd sit at home and just reflect on the nature of things. So, so something, something moves us to get out there and do it, and that's what he's talking about. Ambition may not be the right word, but it's that inner push to... You know, Express oneself. Maybe that's mm -hmm. it. Maybe mm -hmm. that's it, yeah. Mm -hmm. You got the idea. Part of that that's very Winnicottian, too, isn't there? What's that? That's also sort of Winnicottian, part of that idea, in that there are certain kinds of failures that are very important. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. right. Environment. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. good yeah. enough. Good yeah. environment holding you. Mm -hmm. Which all has to be hated in order to love. Sort of okay, well, let's try and stay in. Uh, we're already mixing two things. Yeah. Uh, what should we do now? I guess we should talk about uh, Jung's concept of the self. And, uh, unless, I don't know if you want to go directly into those. Well, I could, I could start from the, at the back end. And, and since we're talking about yeah. this. All right. Um, see, for Jung, the self is not built by accretion. We're talking about now the self with the big S. The self is just a priori. It's just there. And if you start to ask, well, how does it just get there? You know, at what point during the pregnancy is it given? <laughs> it's like a sort of theological argument. We don't know, um, you know, when does the soul come in and all that. Well, these are imponderable questions because we don't know um, what it is. What it is. Thank you. We don't know what the self is. Um, we think it includes the body and the genes, but we don't think it's limited to that. But we think because we think that young self includes spirit, and we don't think that spirit is reducible to the body. Okay. 
So the answer about where Jung's self comes from is we don't know. And it's not a very satisfactory answer, but it's like the ontological ground of this, of Jungian thought. It's, the, it's like you have to, this is where I stand, and I don't know where this comes from, but it's, it's a God term. We can't say where it comes from. Um, but you know, for the Cahusians, the self-object is a God term, and these two poles are a God term. They can't say where they come from either. So you know the notion that you, when somebody starts something, you have to allow them one miracle. <laughs> just the point being, you have to start somewhere. You see, if you don't let someone start somewhere, if you make them prove where they start, then they never get started. So we we don't know what what the self is any more than we know what God is in any in any sense that means anything. So it's it's an a priori concept, which is where everything begins in Jungian psychology. So the, so the self for Jung is just there when when you are born, um, and. In Jung's notion, the self unfolds, and we call that individuation. Okay, and individuation is mentioned in Kohat actually, because he says that Kohat says that there is a blueprint in the child, and this, and that, and that the the little self now, Kohat self, is uh, unfolding according to this innate blueprint, which was present at birth. Now they might say the blueprints and the genes. Okay. Um, and we would quarrel with that but um, blueprint theories blueprint in quotes theories are problematic theories you see because you, if you're going to say there's a blueprint you have to say where does the blueprint come from and then you have to you're immediately philosophically in deep water because you have to postulate something that's more complicated than the blueprint that designed the blueprint and you're in an infinite regress problem you know uh, which takes you back to the Big Bang. So these these blueprint theories, which Kohart and Jung both talk about, sorry, essentially, uh, are very problematic philosophically. Just saying there's a blueprint doesn't say anything in terms of... So we don't know about origins, sorry. We don't have a good origin there. Um, but they both talk about... Well, Kohart talks about a blueprint, and Jung talks about individuation as the unfolding of the self. So there's that area of similarity. Um, now... Um, this is incredibly important from a religious point of view, you see, because if if the self, uh, one of the meanings of the self is the imago dei, the inner image of God in the child, then um, it means that, that that is directing the evolution of the child's psyche. You see, well, the implications of that uh, for spiritual development are very important, and they're intermingling there, but that's really the, the subject of another talk. Except to say that... Um, in, in Jung, uh, Jung postulates the existence of what he calls archetypes. Now, it's very important to understand what an archetype is and what the self is. Any archetype in Jung is a component of the self. There isn't such a thing as the self. And I, I'm not going to get struck by lightning. Because you, mu you mustn't think of, of Jung's self as if it was an orange in the head, like a, like a, a, a monotheistic sort of, there is a self and it's one blob somewhere, okay? The self manifests itself in different ways, and what we call the archetypes, in, or what Jung calls the archetypes, are just manifestations of the self, and the self has many manifestations. So in this sense, it's sort of polytheistic, the self, or the image of the divine in the individual, can manifest itself in, in any of several different ways, but when it does that, we call them archetypes. 
but there's no essential difference between the transpersonal self and the archetypes. Is that clear? They're just manifestations. The, the archetype is a pattern of manifestation, <coughs> and, right. and it, it's transpersonal in that it's common. It's common patterns that we all um, experience. They're filled out. They're, they're colored differently for each of us. They have uh, different pictures in them, different images in them, but the, the pattern That's is the same. So, so the archetypes or the self are what we call morphogenetic principles. In other words, they determine structure. Okay. If you want to know why you're uh, uh, an artist and not an accountant, or uh, you know, um, a lawyer and not a ballet dancer, we would say, well, assuming your development didn't get distorted, which of course is another story, but assuming that you unfolded the way you were supposed to, that there is a form determining principle that moves through you. There is something in you present at birth which, which structures your psyche and your body in a particular way and not in another way. Okay. This is un-American because people like the idea that they can do any, anyone can do anything. Well, in this theory, anyone can't do anything. The best thing you can do is find out who you are. And even that's not true. The best thing you can do is find out what you are because there is an objective or archetypal dimension to the individual which is given. It's like this is what you are and it's going to unfold and you are this and you're not that. And, that's the, and that morphogenetic, that structure-giving notion is the archetype. Uh, and it's just an inherent, innate... And, it, and it's very important when you talk about archetypes to realize that these, these are natural laws, just like the laws of gravity. And people always say to us, the Jungians, well, where are these archetypes? Are they in the brain or the genes? Well, where is the law of gravity? Where is the law of gravity? You think about that. You know, apples fall from people. Well, where is the law which says that? Well, that's a ridiculous question. Okay. The laws are not embodied. Laws are not in a particular place. That's how the universe is put together. Well, the archetypes are natural laws. They aren't in any particular place. They aren't in the brain or in the kidneys. They're just, they're like gravity. They're just, that's just the way things are. They're predictive. Yeah. They allow you to, to predict. And we don't know what they are. We don't know what the, we don't know what the law of gravity is in the metaphysical sense, we know its manifestations, but we don't know what it is in its essence, in some platonic sense, okay? So that, so hence the notion of archetype. We, it's, it's, a, it's a structure-giving principle, and you can't really say what it is, only how it manifests itself, how it, what its effects are. So anything that gives structure and form to the psyche is archetypal by definition, okay? So there is a mother archetype, a father archetype, a priest archetype, whatever it is, okay? You are structured that way, okay? <laughs> and it's given. And you can see immediately why Jung is criticized for being religious and romantic, both of which are true, but some of us happen to like that. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, if, if, if this is true, then these that we talked about in cohort are archetypal because they are form-determining, they are structure-determining. Okay, you see what I mean by that? They are, they, these determine, these are structural determinants within the child's psyche. So we would say that Goha has stumbled on the personalistic manifestations of two archetypes. Okay, but I'll come to, I'll break that down a bit for you. But Actually, I'm, three, if three. you think of the talent yeah. and skills. Yeah, actually, 
Okay, but he, he's describing in personalistic terms what is an inherent, innate, or archetypal dimension within the child. Okay. So then, what is that? Um, so, God is saying, well, there is in the child something which feels wonderful and joyful. Okay. Now, the self, the transpersonal self, we think, this is an adultomorphism, but we think that when the baby is in touch with that, that it experiences joy. You could say, from a religious point of view, that it's, it's with God. Okay? But whether you call it God or the self is just a linguistic problem. It has, neither of them have a whole lot of... They're just a reference to something that's not understandable. But the child is in touch with something very numinous. Okay? So, when the child is expressing its joy at being in touch with this, okay, that is the inner experience of the transpersonal self, okay? And that's where that fullness and joy, and what here is called archaic grandiosity and exhibitionism, that's what that's expressing. Now, when, and here's the relationship between God and man mediated by the parent. If the parent can see that joy in the child and reflect it back, then a piece of it will incarnate. In other words, it'll, you see what I mean by that, come into the body as behavior, as lived experience, not just as potential. Is this making any sense mm -hmm. or is this Greek? Okay, so... It would be like a trans... Would it transmuting? But that's how it happens. Yes. That, is, that is how the archetype incarnates. Yes, that's how it see how we're going to link up. So we're going to say that this, is a, that this theory is a theory of incarnation. That the transpersonal self, the bigger self, is there at birth, and it, it, it only exists as potential. It's like, it's like Horowitz is born as a newborn baby, and he can't play the piano yet, but all that talent is there as potential. How does it incarnate? How does it get into the body as behavior? Okay. How does it become a person? Well, we're talking about the incarnation of this transpersonal potential. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And we're saying that it has to be seen by the mother. Later we'll talk about the importance of soul here. Um, and reflect it back. And when that happens and a piece of the kid's self is formed, as we described, that's a little piece of incarnation. Of what was a transpersonal potential. Does that make sense? The problem comes in if the the parent is not able to see this, it just doesn't see it. If it sees it and is envious of it. Oh, envy is a big one. Yeah. If it sees it and is frightened of it. Frightened by it. If it sees it and wants to have power over that, wants to control or that, claim it for its claim own. It for That's its own. A big one. Um, so it's parent sees the the child's joy. The child's joy. The child's experience we're, we're of God. To, we're trying to explain where the joy comes from. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not just that the parent has to see it. And this is where Collett uh, kind of gets sort of general. He talks about, well, the parent has to see it and mirror it. But it has to be mirrored in particular ways. And if it's mirrored in, in these more negative ways, if it's uh, seen and judged... Then you get into or, the dark side of the self or the dark side of God which for us, from our psychological point of view, is no problem. We have a whole theory now about how that happens. If you're a theologian, you have other problems. But from this point of view, we can talk about the dark side of the self or the dark side of God, and we can explain how that incarnates based on the parent's behavior. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. That's the subject of another. Uh, but, but, but we think that, he's, that here there is an archetypal basis to this. Okay. And there is an archetype that Jung talks about which is called the divine child. Okay. And of course the archetype of the divine child is in mythology is the story of Jesus, Hermes, Krishna, uh, well any of those types who are as children are obviously different, special, important. So they are helpless at the moment when they are born but they have this incredible importance and potential. And we think that the child, every child is born with a divine child as, a, as an innate possibility within them and that that potential has to be realized. So we're talking here, we think archetypally about the divine child, which, which is full of wondrous potential for the future, but, but still has to struggle helpless. with the world and is helpless and is highly likely to get crucified or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but... Um, now there is another another source of grandiosity which is a little different than that Um, that that knowing that there's a divine child in me and that I have a a potential which is still unfolding and all that will lead me to behave in a certain way and will give me contact with joy and so on but there is another kind of grandiosity which has to do with the fact that but when the child is born, it is in a sense merged with the self, with the transpersonal self. You could say it's born out of God, okay? Or you could say that, um, uh, you could say that uh, there is this totality experience, and the child feels part of the totality because it doesn't yet have a sense of I, because that hasn't yet differentiated in the, in the little baby. So because it doesn't have a sense of I, it is part of this great ocean of consciousness, not differentiated. Does that make any sense? Now, when it's with its mother, and mother is, and it feels the strength of its mother, okay, and it feels part of mother, it can feel powerful as a sort of vicarious power, okay, because it, it feels part of this larger totality. Well, some people never get out of that merger with the totality. They never get out of that kind of fusion experience with the totality. And they still have this extraordinary grandiosity where it's as if they are not just the small eye, the crest of the wave, but the whole ocean. Okay, does that make any sense? That's a different kind of grandiosity, but it's due to a failure to fully emerge out of the, out of the unconscious. Okay. Which which could result from failures in mirroring. Which could result from if, failures if in mirroring. If the mother is unable to see the child as, as separate. As separate. And, and mirror back at separateness. Um, and sometimes mirroring back the separateness might be felt as painful and as it, yeah. by the child, but it, it's, it's necessary. necessary. Yeah, this is, if you, in another language, the birth of the ego. It doesn't matter what language you use. But if that differentiation out of the totality doesn't occur, then there's often an inflation where the person feels very grandiose and very self-important. So in this case, the mother fuses with the child, and the child... The child is fused with the mother, and the child never fully separates out. In other words, the child grows up, and some parts of their psyche still fuse with the power of the early experience with the mother. 
But but is there some action on the mother's part that causes? Oh yeah, the mother will let the kids separate because she needs the mother for her own self-integrity. So she won't let the kids separate. So she keeps the child in her own orbit and won't let it separate. Okay. Does that make sense? Could you give some another example of how that would manifest in say in the belt or I would think about people who um um expect themselves to uh, be able to to uh, be successful at something without learning the basic steps thinking you can just sit down at a piano and become a concert pianist and that you don't need the uh, uh, to do the scales over and over again or um, um, it's a narcissistic character disorder who's inflated and full of his own self-importance. Uh, you know, I don't need what other people need. He says that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I just do it. Have you ever? Can you play the violin? I don't know. I've never tried. Can <laughs> <laughs> you give an example of how the mother could? Oh well, in, um, there are certain types of mothers who, where the self-object direction is reversed. It's called a reverse self-object experience where the mother's so fragile that she can't bear the child to separate from her because she needs the child for her own integrity. Because without the child, she'll fall apart. So she has to sleep with the child mm -hmm. all the time. Otherwise, she'll be anxious. Or she has to take the kid with her everywhere to keep her own anxiety down. So the okay. child feeling of individualization is never it's not allowed because the kid can't it separate. Just result in this grandiosity which well, then the, then the kid down and play thinking they can be a The kid then is part of its mother and Kohut gives a case of this actually where the, the mother projected sort of messianic fantasies onto the child and said oh you're going to be grow up, grow up and be so important and so wonderful and, but you're doing it for me you're doing it for me but you're so wonderful you're so important and the kid grows up still fused with the mother but full of this inflated self-importance that the mother stuffed it with okay then it's not a separate individual it's living out its mother's life not its own life but it's full of all this important mother stuff you see what I mean? That would be exactly. It's difficult because maybe the, the child had to accept that role as, yeah. as a child. Yeah. The mother would have fallen apart, so the child has to Separate take on to itself. Um, it, um, it, it can't divest itself of this grandiosity because it needs it in order to, to perform this function. Another example of a way it's seen, I was just thinking, is you'll see the opposite, like people who can't take compliments complimented they then get in touch with that sense of grandiosity and it's so strong in them because they've never separated from it that they they can't they're sort of hiding their light under a bushel because it's too stimulating too and too um, yeah. overwhelming to feel their own grandiosity we want anyone to clap at the end of this <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 If, if that happens you know and a child could not accept compliments yeah. because it is stimulating that feeling mm -hmm. wouldn't that indicate that the child was trying to separate and that the mother simply would not permit it well, we, think we assume that they all try and separate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if you go into mythology you see there are lots of uh, son lover myths where the, the, the mother goddess has a son lover child and it's a problem for the child to break away from the mother 
So that's the mythic background to this. Well, would that child, I understand what you're saying, would that child still be impossibly inflated so that it couldn't come down to Earth if it was trying to separate? Well, it's always trying to separate from the mother, but it cannot do it. Would it retain that grand? It developmentally stops, yes, but the development stops, you see, and it can't differentiate itself. You see these mother-bound people. You know, mother still expects a phone call every day, and uh, I'm still living. My my mother wanted me to go to medical school, so here I am. I'm doing it for her. You know, I might be miserable, but I'm living her life for her. Whatever you want. I mean, it's, it's that kind of stuff. Okay. I I don't see so much as grandiosity, but more like dependence. Uh huh. Dependence issues. Yeah, but isn't it both? Well, I think the, the mother is living out of her drive in the sun. That can make the child feel very important. Yeah. If the child is so is needed by its mother, then the, the child begins to feel very, very Im important. And it might not even want to feel that important, but it, um, it, it's, it's filled with that. And a lot of times that becomes split off. I'm thinking of a patient I have who was very important to her father, uh, so important that her father came into her bed every night um, from like very early on till about 13. Now, she had, she had to split that off and put it over here somewhere. So the first three or four years of therapy, it was, oh, I'm this terrible person. I can't do anything. I can't accomplish anything. I have no importance in the world. But then slowly we found there was a little piece over here that felt like the most important um, person in the entire universe. Um, yeah. I suppose where I'm having a little bit of confusion is yeah. that uh, originally you were saying there's a difference in uh, this feeling of, 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 I'll say, grandiosity. Yeah. Uh, from the way Cole had talked about it, um, there's a difference, and uh, you said there's a different kind of grandiosity. Different quality. Yeah. Different quality. Well, it's a bad word. I understand and that. I have problems. Mm -hmm. uh, one is joy, and one is inflation. Is that any better? Mm -hmm. One is the joy of my expressing myself and allowing who I am to come through me. And the other is just I'm inflated for all these other sweetness that we... Is that any that kind of self-importance? Yeah, mm -hmm. based on this kind of merger with Mother to me who we've been talking about. Is that any help? Yeah, yeah. This, this grandiosity is a tricky word, but I'm trying to say that one, I think, is, is the joyful expression of the nature of myself, the self, coming through me. I just play the piano because that's what I am. Versus I'm doing it to make mother happy so that she'll love me so that I'll feel well, that's a whole different thing. Um, just thinking, when Jung talks about inflation, isn't there a certain sense where um, there's an identification mm -hmm. with an experience that if it were just something that came and went would be fine, but it become it takes on the whole. So rather than being filled with that sense of joy when that feeling comes and that sense of grandiosity when you're actually doing something terrific, you're terrific yeah. all the time. Yeah. Whatever That's what we call identification with the archetype. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. The quality of joy as opposed to excessive grandiosity, is there um, um, 
dimension of pleasure is one experiences pleasure and the other mm-hmm. is not. Is excessive grandiosity not experienced? Is it natural pleasure or is it painful? Excessive grandiosity um, is often defensive. Yeah. And it's yes, it's pain, it's overstimulating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's uh, being filled with something that that's too much, and that uh, was put was demanded of one. And and it's been my experience that most people are uncomfortable with that and don't experience that as as a source of joy, but as um, either a burden or um, well, they're or a, an embarrassment. You know, an image that comes to mind is Judy Garland, and she was one of these child stars who loved and pushed her mm-hmm. constantly. For her own needs, for the mother's needs. Well, uh, and I was thinking that near the end of uh, Judy Garland's life, I remember that last time in London, uh, she kept, you know, growing up and then falling again in terms of the public. And uh, one of her last performances, uh, when she was on Rise again in London, uh, the audience began to applaud, and then the, the applause fell down. Uh, Judy Garland on the stage fell to her knees and said, keep applauding, keep oh, applauding. Well, that's what we call mirror hunger. So, that's, yeah. that's exactly mirror hunger. Mm-hmm. Okay, so desperate, because without it, I'm falling apart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so is there a lack of self-esteem? Well, that's the point, mm-hmm. that, that she's so mirror hungry because she didn't get it when she should have got it at an important developmental period. So now she's full of holes in that area. So she's hungry for it, to have it made up. And we'll talk about how that gets recreated in therapy and what the therapist should do in that kind of situation. Um, it seems hard to really grasp how deprived she could be, Judy Garland, or any of these. How about, like, uh, opera singers? Uh, you know, I mean, if you're doing this out of deprivation, well, I think there are people who do it because they have great innate of talent. Course. And there are people who are doing it who are desperate. But it's hard to even, you know, have any sense of how deprived that person can be. I mean, well, she, uh, on she, the her, she committed suicide, friends. Okay. Um, listen, we, we should have finished uh, four minutes ago, but I, can I just have two more minutes? Because I didn't talk about this at all. Um, the archetypal basis of this idealization and, and the idealized parent. The corresponding thing in Jungian psychology is what we call the projection of the self onto the parent. Okay, and you find this in Jung and in um, Neumann and Edinger write about this, and uh, various people. And um, this is the idea here is that this is the bigger self is carried by the parent. This is in quotes. Okay, in other words, the child does not experience the transpersonal self except with the parent. The parent is looked up to and admired and idealized because they are carrying the projection of the self for the child. Okay. So we think that both of these are archetypal experiences of different aspects of the self. One inside, or maybe in some distorted form, and one projected onto the parent, or in therapy gets projected onto the therapist. But w- w- what we're saying here is that these things that Yudkowit is talking about are structurally important, therefore they are archetypal. And that's where they link up with Jung. But what, we'll, what we're going to have to do next week is show that for Jung, these would only be two components of the self. They wouldn't be the whole of the self. Okay?
this would be a reasonable stopping point if people want to have any questions. And is it a one-liner or is it a... What, what is it possible to conceive of the mother merging with the infant rather than the infant merging with the mother? If you well, see in the research is showing the babies yeah, yeah. are separate right away and yeah. mm -hmm. are agents of themselves yeah. from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, this takes us into Dan Stern and all that. Um, um, well, I think the, the evidence that infants are have quite a bit of sense of self from the very beginning and their own separateness and their own initiative um, is evidence for Jung's idea of the self as something that, that is present from the very beginning. Yeah. And that there is a bridging theory. No, it's not right. saying there's most of the merger right. notions. But there's a difference between having a sense of self and incarnating it in, in behavior. Mm -hmm. we, next year we can begin with Michael Fordham, who is a, a London Jungian who bridges Jung and Kohut very nicely with a theory called deintegration. But it would take too long to go into that. Pardon? Well, there are two. Um, there's this paper which is available out there, and if you want the Kohut. Um, well, of course, there's Kohut's books, which are not easy to read unless you're familiar with psychoanalytic jargon. There's a review article that... Uh, I'm sorry, we must have left it at home. There's a review article which, which talks about Kohut in very simple terms that I've left at home. We'll, we'll bring in next week. But if you pick up a copy of, the, uh, of this paper... What do you call that name? Young and Kohut. Very original title. Is Michael Ford the man who's speaking tomorrow night? No, that's Anthony, Anthony Stevens. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>